It's as easy as jumping out of a plane. It's the Your Life Lived Well podcast with Dr. Kevin Payne. So our guest today is a combat veteran. He's a licensed clinical social worker. He works for the VA and lives with chronic health conditions himself and has spent his life dedicated to supporting veterans and their families who live with chronic conditions as well. So I'd like uh, our guest, Jason Dye, to introduce himself here. (laughs) I think you did a really good job, Kevin. So thanks for for having me on. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. Oh, we're glad to have you. I served for eight years active duty, uh, spent three years in the National Guard. Uh, I... (laughs) I had the pleasure of uh, serving in the uh, Honor Guard up in D.C. and and doing that. I was uh, actually part of the the cleanup for uh, the Pentagon, so Operation Noble Eagle, and then uh, spent 15 months in Operation Iraqi Freedom up in the northern Nineveh and and, uh, uh, Talafur and and Mosul and and Q West. So, yeah, I... uh, Happy to be here, I guess. I, <laughs> I don't know what else to say outside of that. Well, and, and then you, you went to college, and, 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 and that is, you know, for our audience's sake, full disclosure, that is where we met. Right. Um, and uh, distinguished yourself uh, in, in your academic career and, and decided to uh, focus on social work. And can you say just a minute about how you made that choice? Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's actually comes from you, uh, <laughs> because when I first started out, I, I was going on a sociology path, and that's how you'd become my career counselor, and um, in getting to know me and what my desires were uh, as far as career outside of outside of schooling, you had made the suggestion to switch over to social work because the level of, of uh, credentialing I would need as a sociologist would require more schooling and, and a higher level than what I would be able to do clinically as a social worker. And so through your, um, through your recommendation, switching to social work to be able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish would be done more affordably uh, <laughs> that's important. <laughs> it is. And, and so that's what, why I made the switch to social work, because I've always had the, the intrigue of, of why as humans we do the stupid things that we do. But mm-hmm. also I've, I've always had a heart of empathy, you know, uh, even way back, you know, when I was barely speaking, you know, in videos that my parents had, I always had a heart for others. So it just, it's a natural fit. Well, I, I didn't know that was the answer you were going to give, but whew, I'm glad I got that one right. <laughs> so after the break here, we're going to hit some serious topics. Yeah. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. 
Welcome back. We're with Jason Dye, a licensed clinical social worker, veteran, and, and we want to talk about veterans' issues here. So in your job every day, you see the kinds of issues that, that veterans are facing. Mm-hmm. So what are the big ones from your perspective? Well, I guess it, it really depends on the era. You know, um, in every era of veteran that I've had the privilege of working with, there's always some comorbidity. So, uh, I mean, there's a combination of, of physical and mental health. The uh, older generations, you know, so pre-Vietnam, there's not as many identified or, or diagnosed mental health issues. It's more on the uh, the effects of aging. So diabetes and, and CHF and uh, respiratory issues, cancer, uh, things along those lines. And then Vietnam and, and more current, you really start seeing a lot more of those mental health issues. So, so predominantly post-traumatic stress. And, um, and so like Vietnam, you have Agent Orange and all of the, the issues associated with that. So again, you know, CHF, heart issues, lung issues, circulatory issues, nerve, you know, neurological issues, things like that, that stem from Agent Orange. Um, you have Desert Storm, and so you've got the same uh, issues with PTSD, depression, anxiety, things like that, but then you have Desert Storm Syndrome, and so, <laughs> you know, all of the physical complications that come with that. And then you have my era, uh, OEF, OIF, OND era uh, veterans that now we're starting to see uh, the big issues with the burn pits and the the potential for, for physiological complications from being exposed to the burn pits along with PTSD and anxiety and depression and things like that. So, um, and then, you know, uh, substance abuse, you know, those who, who are using substances to cope with all of the issues that they have and how that interacts with, with them and their caregivers and their family. And, and so it's pretty complex. It is. It is. I know, you know, from my own personal experience, my father's a Vietnam vet and he came back with you know, the issues related to PTSD and tinnitus and Agent Orange, and completely kept it bottled up for decades and didn't say anything about it mm-hmm. until less than 20 years ago. So, uh, you know, I, I, I suspect that that's something we'll probably talk about here more, but how do you get vets who are, are trained to be tough and self-reliant to even take advantage of the kinds of help that that's out there. If there was a textbook answer, I wish I could give it to you. Even if you find one, let me know and, and cut me in on the profits. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I was just having this conversation with my counselor uh, about the same thing. How do we get veterans to open up? How do we get veterans to uh, talk about their issues and really it comes down to uh, in my my mind kind of like polyvagal theory so so that fear uh, overcoming that fear being able to feel as though you can trust the person that you're talking with um, it comes a little bit more naturally for me and the veterans that I serve because I am a combat veteran and so there's that instant bond 
there's that instant um, feeling of safety and trust because of that shared experience. So even though my experience is different than theirs, it's still shared. We've still, in some aspects, shed blood together. We've we've been in an experience where our lives were at risk and we have the same culture. You know, that's another one of my, my big pieces is that, that culture, the military culture is the oldest culture in the world because regardless of ethnicity and background and situation and era, even when you go back to the Homer, you know, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, you see the same culture for thousands and thousands of years. And so we feel, you know, there's just that bond. You you have an understanding that is different than than everyone else. And so your guard is is able to come down a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so um, you've got to speak to that first. You have to have some kind of, even if you don't fully understand the military culture, just the, the acknowledgement that there is one is a good place to start. So um, getting getting someone to feel safe enough to start opening up is 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 the key point, and and that looks different for everybody. So, um, you know, again, I wish I had <laughs> I wish I had a answer, but it's it's just that. Well, it seems like there's there's a a complex of issues that that transcend almost every case, and that's. You know, it begins with post-traumatic distress, which we'll we'll talk about in more detail. But, but that's not separate from depression and anxiety and chronic pain and substance abuse and suicide. I mean, all of those are tied up together, mm-hmm. and, and we tend to want to divorce them from one another and 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 have a nice little pigeonholed uh, diagnosis and and right. So, how do you? You know, in a world where you have to have a specific diagnosis in order to get treatment, mm-hmm. how how do you try to account for the the broad ranging kinds of of effects in in the in these people's lives? So really, it the way that I approach my clients, um, what's most important to them? Mm-hmm. What do they want to work on, or what? is the the predominant issue that they're experiencing um you know most of this so so what i try to do what what i've seen for the most part even in my own experience and in those that i've served when it comes to to post-traumatic stress specifically is we tend to to throw everything wrong under that blanket so i got you know road rage oh there's that ptsd again oh i i yelled at my wife oh there's that ptsd again oh i you know i got anxious in the store oh there's that ptsd and 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 identifying that not everything is that 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 diagnosis is just that it's not our identity it's not who we are it's not in control and so being able to distinguish is kind of how I interact with my myself and with my clients is, is separating that out. Okay. I, I got road rage because that person cut me off and, you know, 
F him, you know, it's not, it's not my PTSD. It's just, it's just a situation, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that really answers what you're, what you're trying to get at, but, um, trying to get people to, to not identify themselves by their diagnosis, I guess is where I'm going. Yeah. It, diagnoses can become over-determining and we, we can actually, I think, lose a sense of agency when we just lay everything at the feet of our diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not that it doesn't make it more difficult. It's not that it's not real, but it doesn't have to get in the way of everything you want to do in your life as well. Right. So uh, that's a tricky balance because nobody wants to be, nobody wants to be forced to see that, that they're kind of using that as, a, as an out. Right. And, uh, and yet, that's the kind of thing that they do need to see if they're going to make a step forward. Well, and like you said, they don't want to be pigeonholed into this stereotype. Mm -hmm. You know, um, again, there's this perception that the angry veteran, you know, the one that's got PTSD, that's crazy, that flips out on people and da-da-da-da-da. And, and that just permeates uh, out of out of our culture and so we don't want to be labeled that we don't want that identity um, and so yeah I I don't want my PTSD to be I don't want that to be the way that you know me mm -hmm. yeah and and then on the other hand in order to really know you we have to know that that's something that you're dealing with mm-hmm and and so how do we find that that right balance right well yeah and it goes back to that trust you know can i trust you with this mm -hmm. can i trust you with this information that you're not going to judge me by it or or think ill of me because of it um so how can i trust you with this information and still uh, still feel comfortable you know, again, with, with somebody that has shared that experience, it's, it's easier because you get it. Right. So how do I get you to get it without having to go through all of this? You know, you're, you're, you're touching on a theme that I like to come back to. And it's, it's when you live with one of these chronic health conditions that's invisible or with symptoms that are invisible, um, you're always trying to find the balance between uh, between stigmatization and being closeted and and which way are you going to go with right. that there's there's always something there's one last issue in this topic that I wanted us to touch on briefly and that's another set of issues that I know you're always dealing with and that's reacclimatization reintegration rehabilitation readjustment you know and and in extreme cases when 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 soldiers don't do that you've got uh, a lot of homelessness and and so forth so how does that fit into what you're doing? That's a huge part. And, and honestly, I think an, an area we could spend hours talking about, um, and that's just some is transition. Um, that's an area where I feel like we could be doing better. And I think we could really reduce and minimize some of the issues that our veterans are facing if we help them transition better uh, more smoothly or, or, or however you, you contextualize that. If we had a better system to transition veterans into 
modern society, I think we would reduce most of these mental health issues that we're seeing. Well, I think part of it begins with something you mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago. There is a military culture, Mm -hmm. and you are indoctrinated into that culture, and then suddenly when you're dropped out of it, Mm -hmm. what do you do? Right. And 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 that is because you know that's very definitely not mm-hmm. the 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 culture that the rest of us live in mm-hmm. every day, right? Um, and and it seems to me that we we need to take a lot more responsibility yeah. for for how we handle that. So after the break, uh, we'll transition into another very interesting topic, and we'll be right back. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at JustJump.life. Welcome back. We're here with Jason Dye, and today, in this segment, we're going to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, which is something that you personally have dealt with and mm-hmm. you deal with a lot as a professional mm-hmm. I, I will only throw out one little comment here to begin with I really 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 despise the term post-traumatic stress disorder I really wish we'd go with PTD post-traumatic distress because it's not a disorder this right. is an entirely natural reaction mm-hmm. it's not a functional reaction it's not necessarily a healthy reaction but it's natural mm-hmm. and and when we when we call it that we uh, too many people who live with it feel diminished sure and and i think that's that that's really wrong and and i also don't like the term stress rather than distress sure because there's good stress mm-hmm. and as a society we need to understand that and realize the difference so I'm going to step off my soapbox and let you go ahead and talk about that stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and I agree with you, um, you know, even even distress can be useful and and spun positively in the right situation and context. Um, but you're right. Anytime you associate the word disorder with something, it, there's a negative connotation to that. And so... Um, the understanding that, like you said, this is a natural reaction, uh, as I mentioned before, like even in the Iliad and the Odyssey, you see combat soldiers having the same reactions to the atrocities and, and, and uh, the immoralities of war. Um, and and there's God, I, there's so many books that talk about this that right. that I'm just like geeking out right now, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So um, each person has the ability 
to do immoral things in in the right context. You know, we all have that bloodlust, that need for vengeance and and uh, doing things out of, that are just and righteous. And and if you spin anything the right way, you can do some of the most horrific things that you would like, no, there's no way I could do that. Well, you don't know because you've never been in that context. And so when coming back from doing those things and realizing that we stepped out of our moral bounds, then we've got this whole moral issue that we're dealing with. Like, how could I have done this? How How could this have happened? How could I have let this happen? And so, um, you know, there's an argument that that post-traumatic stress is more of an, a moral injury than anything else, and and again, I think it's contextual. And a lot of, mm-hmm. at, depending on the trauma, yeah, absolutely. If uh, so, like our Vietnam era veterans, if they were ordered to torch a village uh, and and kill innocent women and children because they could have quote unquote been combatants, but they weren't. Yeah, that's a morality issue. You know, if it was, um, I was in a convoy and and my truck was hit by an IED. Not so, not not really an issue of morality, but of a specific traumatic event in which my life was in danger. So it, it it's broad. Well, yeah, at the root of of all the incidents that that give rise to a post traumatic distress response there is some kind of violation. Mm-hmm. There's a, and, and it could be a physical violation, it could be an emotional violation, it could be a moral violation, it could be, you know, any of those things or all of them together. And, and it seems to me that a lot of post-traumatic distress is about, in the aftermath, how do we try to wrap our brains around having to live and go forward carrying that. Right. Yeah. So, um, a lot of so some of the theory behind uh, post traumatic is uh, uh, the ideal that um, where we are stuck mostly is emotionally. So, so how we stored the information on an emotional level, not necessarily a factual level, but on, on that emotional reaction and dealing with, with, I don't want to say that it was stored in incorrectly, but the perception, you know, understanding that, like you said, under normal, under these circumstances, your reaction was natural. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. And, and, you know, we, 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 we tend to take offense if someone says we had recalled something correctly or accurately. But we're not recorders. Right. We, we don't do that. And, and our, our brains stamp those memories that have an emotional and hormonal punch behind them in ways that it doesn't store other things. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, I, I regularly throw myself out of airplanes, and, and that's traumatic. I love doing it, but it, <laughs> but it, it triggers your acute stress response. And, and you know, I, I can tell those, those memories are like flashbulb memories. Mm-hmm. 
you can remember every second of a jump mm-hmm. because you know in the back of your head it's I'm gonna die I'm gonna die I'm gonna die right yeah and that's what happened whenever somebody had that event that gives rise to post-traumatic distress right that that fight flight or freeze you know just just for a, a perfect example this past weekend I fell down the stairs just foot slipped out from me I was eating some some of my kids goldfish that they had left out because and i guess dude. i call Spoils it war, right, i mean call karma whatever yeah. but you know i'm just munching on chips and and that fight or flight all the chemicals and stuff in our body it's it really is amazing because it feels like time slows down but it's mm-hmm. just our senses on hyperdrive taking in like you said those flash bulb just every single microsecond uh-huh. that's going on i saw the I saw the the goldfish fly out from the bag. I saw them going higher than me and falling and all the thoughts that I had in those split seconds and and impact and and all of that, you know, and it was less than a second, but it seemed like it took 10, you know. I I had one of those experiences yesterday. I mean, exactly like that. I'm, I'm, you know, at about 14,000 feet and I jump out and I'm doing acrobatics mm-hmm. and I'm doing some barrel rolls and all of a sudden I look to the side and I see this flash and my pilot chute is starting to prematurely come out and deploy so I'm like oh crap this is going to be a short free fall and I'm on my back mm-hmm. and when your parachute deploys on your back it hurts sure so fortunately it, it was just you know second nature I, I rolled over so that, you know, by the time it got out, it was on my belly. But I, I can remember every instant of that happening in less than a second. Mm-hmm. But it's it's flash. Now, right. now, now, what if that event is something that is the worst event of your life? Mm-hmm. Or is the event where, you know, even you were, were doing something that violates, uh, you know, otherwise your moral code. Sure. How do we deal with that? <laughs> <laughs> Again, if, I'm going to launch the big questions <laughs> at you, buddy. Again, yeah. if there was a textbook answer. Um, really, you know, my, my viewpoint is that what matters most is the relationship that you have with the person that you're working with. So again, allowing them the space or creating the space in which they can feel comfortable opening, Mm -hmm. because that's really what we're talking about. You know, um, military culture, masculinity, stuff it down, stuff it down tight, lock that up and, and, you know, keep Mm -hmm. it down. And so to deal with it, it's got to come out. And in order to for it to come out, we have to feel safe enough for it to come out. And so we've got all these great modalities and therapies and theories that can help shape the matter, the manner in which it comes out. But really what it all comes down to is relationship. Can I trust you with this information? Is this a space where I can open up safely? Because I don't know what's going to happen when I open up. What is it that you end up having to tell the people around someone dealing with PTSD the most? What do you, what do you want them to know? So, like the caregivers that I've worked with, uh, you know, again, just just educating on you know generalities of of post traumatic stress, and then 
ways in which they can be an effective caregiver. You know what I mean? So, um, allowing them the freedom to, to speak openly about their experience because it also traumatizes them. It affects the whole family dynamic, right? So, um, validating their experience in my husband's not the same man that came back validating. He threw my China at the wall. He yelled at our kids. He, he hit me. Mm -hmm. He doesn't hit me. He hit me. And so validating that experience at the same time and then saying, this is a part of the PTSD, but this isn't just, you know, so, so, so breaking it down for them also so that they understand and, and understand it's not a personal attack necessarily, Mm -hmm. you know? So, so sharing all of those. So again, taking the time to break it down, the more knowledgeable they are, um, the more safe they feel in opening up, the better that they can, can understand and come at it from a, from a different perspective. Is there anything that kind of stands out in your experience that tends to separate the people who successfully deal with their post-traumatic distress versus those who don't? Man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I know everyone's an individual and it's all different, but are there any themes that, that... So, so success, success, man, God, that's hard to define. Um, those that keep getting up after being knocked down, you know, um, one, one theme that I go over constantly is that progress is not linear. You know, it's different than some physical injuries. Like you break your leg, there's a linear healing process 99% of the time mental health it doesn't work that way and so progress is is continuing to try to get better continuing to get back up because there's going to be valleys there's going to be peaks there's going to be spirals there's going to be all of that no matter how much education no matter how much treatment you go through you're going to be affected for the rest of your life so having that knowledge and not being consumed when you hit those valleys. So progress is about resilience. Yeah. And on that note, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. I'm Dr. Kevin Payne. Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. And we're back with Jason Dye, and we're talking about masculinity and chronic illness. This is a a topic that is near and dear to my heart. (laughs) And I know one we've talked about before. Sure. Man. Uh, uh, You know, it's funny these... uh, Well, it's... Whatever. It's funny. Uh. Well, even talking about it, even bringing it up as a subject is a threat to your masculinity. 
Well, you know, I mean, so, you know, even before documented history, I mean, it's, it's been a male driven world, you know? And so, um, it's such a deeply rooted ideal or, or identity even that, um, it is tough to talk about because what masculinity has looked like has changed dramatically through era, through culture, through ethnicity and, and all that. And so um, understanding the societal pressures, the individual pressures, the, the background, your education, knowledge, teachings, all of that make up your view of what it means to be a man well yeah and and even though we know parts of this are less than useful <laughs> and and we know parts of this are even toxic it's really easy to just kind of <clears throat> grunt and scratch and and fall back <laughs> on yeah on that on that primal masculine display behavior mm-hmm. and and when we get called out on it, especially when it seems like our bodies or our minds are what's betraying us, mm-hmm. when, when you can't do the stereotypical masculine things, right. then where's your manliness? I had the privilege of, of running a few dad groups when I was uh, in an inpatient uh, psychiatric unit. And... Uh, it was it, it was really it was really intriguing it, it was uh, i enjoyed it so much for for many reasons uh so one of the thing so the theme was what does it mean to be a man what does it mean to be a dad and so one of the one of the the exercises was to have them list out all of the ideals that their fathers had of what it meant to be a dad and what it meant to be a father and then what their views on what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be a father. And, and it was, it was really interesting. The things that society tells us about being a man, you know, the way you look or the way you act or the way you behave wasn't anything really that was listed. It was, it was, uh, those attributes, you know, um, being loving, being kind, um, you know, being a good role model, you know, those were the things that were important to these guys, not how I looked or how I dressed or, you know, all that superficial stuff that, that society tells us that we need to be. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you know, for, for, for me, part of it is, you know, part of it that, that I respond to is having the capacity to to give to and provide for the people that I love, mm-hmm. and that you know that could be materially, but it could be you know time and attention and love and safety and mm-hmm. and all those things. And you know I know personally that that there was a time when my illness took a really awful turn, and mm-hmm. I didn't know whether I was going to recover from it or not, and. You know, the the lowest point for me was not the illness, but but 
having someone who I cared about look me right in the eyes and not understand and say, you know, you're a worthless bastard. Mm. You can bleep that if you want. (laughs) I'm talking to our engineer. She likes bleeping me sometimes. (laughs) But that's true. I mean, that, 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 that was the lowest point for me because... Uh, you know, I was being attacked in my masculinity. Yeah. And I was trying really hard. Sure. I was trying really hard. But sure. my brain was broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that whole self-worth uh, or lack of self-worth maybe is, is better. Um, that That's so critical. Um, yeah, I had a low point like that too. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, you you do. You just kind of freeze. You it just. I mean, it's soul crushing. Yeah. Um. And it, man, <laughs> it kind of hit me emotionally there, because it where I was originally going when you were talking, or what came to mind about that resilience piece is, we are are so much more. Uh, willing to do for others than for ourselves. Yes. And so that's, that's that critical piece, you know, especially like when I was doing this dad group is that, and even for myself, what really lit the fire was being there for my kids. Mm-hmm. You know, the thought of seeing my kids not being able to throw a football ball outside with me or kick a soccer ball outside with me or or play on a jungle gym with me because my back and my knees and my hips are all you know damaged um the thought that they couldn't feel safe opening up to me because dad might flip out on me those were images that i saw that that scared me more than anything and and like no that's not the future that i want for them so i'm going to do whatever i can to fix myself so that that's not their reality. And I think one of the hidden traps of masculinity and chronic illness is that we get so, because it's so easy, if you buy into this ideal, Mm. it is so easy to keep pushing and pushing and pushing yourself until you are so far past the point of, of being able to operate well and you have so overextended yourself by trying to do for others. Right. And you don't even see that because you are so overextended, you are increasingly failing those people. Right. And what you need to do is back off and take care of yourself mm-hmm. for a little bit so that you can have something to give. That's And that's one of the things that I go over with my caregivers constantly is it's contrary to think that in, in caring for someone else, you need to care for yourself first because you you neglect yourself like you said to a point where it's critical and and then you put everybody in a bad spot because if you're not providing that care and that care is is crucially needed what happens when you you can't care for yourself anymore yeah you know and um so that that is contrary to to most of our our behavior. Like, no, I I put myself on the back burner because I'm good, and mm-hmm. and then we start lying to ourselves. Oh, I'm still good. I'm yeah. still good. I'm still good. 
Well, I know it got so bad in my case that it's one of those, you know, flashbulb experiences that I that was profoundly changing for me. And and my son was about twelve years old at the time, and and he just flat out said to me one day, "Dad, you know you really suck at doing things for yourself." And you know I knew that, but but I didn't know how bad it had gotten. Sure, yeah. You know, when he noticed it, and he was willing to say something about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that began a long process of, of me trying to, to pay attention to the things that I'd always advised other people to do. <laughs> well, yeah, it's that old saying, right? Mechanics drive the worst cars, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it is. You know, you, well, when you're in it emotionally, you have those blinders on. You're unaware all of all of the 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 teachings and the education and experience we have in in helping others overcome these get lost because yes. we're in it we've got an investment we we're emotionally spiritually connected we're engaged in this and so we're being driven from that perspective not from the professional this is what should happen. Or, you know? or even worse, so at some level we are aware and we're rationalizing it away. Uh, sure, right, yeah. yeah. Or, or rationalizing our behavior as professional when it's not, you mm-hmm. know, like, yes, I'm in the right. Yeah. And I'm, no, I'm not. <laughs> so, uh, so I think, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to solve this issue here, but, but we, we've come across, I think, a couple of really important key kind of trends and, and, one of them is is we all need to take you know all, all of us men and all of the you know the women in our lives too need to step back and take a look at the what masculinity means to them right cuz it's defined differently by everybody it is it is and a lot of those are are really dysfunctional and and it, and it's okay if we acknowledge that and, and then do something else about it. And then I think another thing that, that you know, we, we keep coming back to is this idea that, that you got to take care of yourself, too. Mm-hmm. And, geez, I don't want to do that. I really don't. But that's, that's something that this year I have, you know, I've, I've made a priority for myself. And believe it or not, that's why I jump out of planes all the time. I jumped out of... You know, I, I jumped out of a plane 11 times last week. And, and you know, because it's a mental health thing for me. Sure. It's a joy thing. And I don't care what people do. Find your thing that's your joy and just do it for the sake of doing it. And as long as it's legal, moral. Well, yeah, yeah. But, you know, find your thing. Yeah. And, yeah. I agree. You know, and that's, I think that's, you know, going back to the, the masculinity thing and, and this whole idea uh, that we have to uh, lock it up and bottle it up and stuff is if I work on it, I have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I can. Yeah. And and we don't say that out in our out loudy voice, you know, but that's that that's that little teeny tiny inner voices i don't know if i can handle this well, that's the deepest heart of our insecurity right there and and it's such a sensitive point so we'll let people think about that as we go into our next break i'm dr kevin payne 
Just jump with me into your life lived well. Half of us now live with chronic illness. Mine is multiple sclerosis. It's your life. Live it well. A chronic diagnosis doesn't mean goodbye to the good life you wanted. You don't have to feel overwhelmed or hopeless. I'll show you how to save yourself. Take your first step at justjump.life. And we're back with Jason Dye, and I want us to talk for a few minutes here about medical marijuana. And we live in this world that has that is still polarized about the issue of, of medical cannabis, uh, and yet we also have, as you as you get younger and younger in the demographics, there's there's more and more support uh, for this. There's an increasing pile of studies that demonstrate uh, some kind of, of medical efficacy uh, to this plant and the active ingredients in this plant. Uh, many states have now medical, you know, have now made medical marijuana legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right now we're in Missouri, and you know this is the first year that medical marijuana is legal in Missouri, but over the border in Kansas, where you live, it is not. Mm-mm. And Kansas has been, uh, you know, there have been some rather regressive, you know, political directions to some of their policies in, in recent years. And I know that, you know, personally, because you've dealt with a lot of... Uh, veterans that that you support who have conditions that may well be helped. I know that you feel strongly about having the widest variety of possible tools available, Mm -hmm. and you've gotten involved in that fight in Kansas personally. So can you tell us about that? Yeah. So, you know, um, again, you know, kind of like you said, a complex issue when it comes to, to treatment. But ultimately where the country is going right now is, is for legalization. Um, and so Kansas specifically is going to be surrounded by States where it's legal in one aspect or another Colorado, it's even recreational, but Nebraska is likely to pass it this year. Um, Oklahoma has it passed. Missouri now has it passed. So we're going to be surrounded by States where it's, it's legal in one respect or another. And from that context alone, it would be who of Kansas to to get in, in line because it's going to create a lot of issues. It's going to be real tough to enforce. Well, it's, it's going to be tough to enforce. It's going to be, I would say, detrimental. It's going to financially further hurt the state of Kansas. The, the research also shows that the amount of time spent uh, legally in um, the arrest and the convictions and all of that associated with marijuana-related crimes is, is very costly. Uh, it costs more than, than is gained through, you know, uh, fines and, and, and legal fees and all that stuff. So it, it, it costs more to deal with than to, to not. 
And so when you've got a state surrounded by other states that it's legal, there's going to be, there's going to be people that are, you know, uh, so I, I see more costly costliness, you know, uh, legally because it's going to become more apparent. Our Kansas law officers are going to be looking out for it more. It's going to be more of a, of a real uh, tangible issue daily. And so there's going to be more risk. And it's going to take more time and more focus off of what personally I believe are more significant crimes, theft and, and, and uh, you know, shootings and, and gang-related stuff. And, and so the focus is going to shift off of that. And so those are going to, there's going to be more of those because there's more officers focused on this issue that whatever side is, is an issue or not. You know what I mean? Yeah, not to mention the the Kansas snack food pro, uh, you know market is is missing out on a huge <laughs> hit that the other other states around it are not, and I think the Cheetos lobby is really going to go after this. Right? Yeah, our Funyuns, you know, something, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Oh, hosting dongs, whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no snack product for harm during the making of this segment. Right? Yeah, and, and we're not getting uh, kickback. From no, those no kickback. So. No kickbacks. <laughs> uh, but. Why, why do you think there is such resistance in Kansas and, you know, some other pockets of the nation here to medical marijuana? So there's, there's a, a few major rationalizations that, that I, I have from my perspective that I see from others. One is a closed-mindedness of some of those that are, are in positions that that could make this legal so you have um you know looking at the history of cannabis in this country and and in 1937 the the illegalization of it nationally uh coming from racism and fear and and things along those those lines um and this this ideal that we've been um, spoon-fed is that it's wrong, it's bad, it's the devil's lettuce, it's, you know, it, you know, uh, reefer madness. And, and so we've, we've had this shoved in our face in one aspect or another our whole lives. There's only just a small handful of people that were alive prior to its uh, criminalization. And even those that are were so young that they probably really truly didn't understand before you know mm -hmm. so so none of us really have have a true understanding of what it was like to have this as a a legal treatment method or even recreational uh, uh product none of us have that conceptualization none of us know what it was like it's no coincidence that at the beginning of the 20th century, you had legal alcohol and cannabis and opioids in the United States. And then in the, you know, in the first few decades, all three of them become illegal. And the only one that becomes legal again is the one preferred by white middle class people. I'm, that's not a coincidence. No, it's not. It's not. Uh, 
and and of course Hearst in his paper lobby was all over marijuana. Yeah, that as well. was another one too. Yep. Uh, but but <laughs> I had a friend who used to say, "Don't panic if it's organic." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's well, it's true. You know, so one of the arguments by one of the opposers uh, when I was at the Capitol was trying to say that. And, and while he's saying that, I would just interject here that, that Jason has spoken at the Kansas State Capitol, you know, on this issue, and, and you know, he really is in the thick of this fight. Uh, right. Yeah, should have prefaced that. But anyway, so, uh, <laughs> but basically reverse, I mean, just so saying that that cannabis grown naturally was contaminated and that synthesized opioids were pure <laughs> and that was you know it's, it's like yeah because all the data supports that so uh you know but you've also got big pharma mm -hmm. you know and and i'm Certainly. not i'm not going to go off on a on a um this isn't the conspiracy podcast right yeah but, yeah but, not going yeah. off on but but there's truth in that yeah the, um, they, they're not for they are not for this right so you've got uh, you know, industry that makes its money off of prescription synthesized medications that are very structured and controlled and measured, and you've got a plant that isn't. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's the that's one of the biggest arguments. Um, but still, so you you've got a, a whole industry that makes their money off of this that really can't capitalize off of a natural growing plant. Well, you know, in just I try to be logical and and you know because I'm a scientist and and I just think as a culture we've kind of set our bar at we're going to legalize alcohol. So I I kind of think that that any substance that is as bad as alcohol or not, or just a little less, should be legal. That's, I mean, that's, that's kind of my thing. You know, we set our bar, so right. let's live by it. Right. But that's just me. <laughs> well, I mean, you've... Logically, yes, we know that. But, you know, I mean, nobody acts out of logic first. It's all emotion-based, and then we back it up with logic, or try to back it up, or try to rationalize our emotional reactions to things. And so if you've got these ideals that were put into your head that it's bad and it's evil and it's wrong and it's sinful and all this stuff, but yet you've got a culture that accepts and promotes and glorifies another that is worse emotionally. Sure. You know. Well, I think, you know, as someone who lives with multiple sclerosis, which is one of the conditions that is most... Uh, helpfully affected in in all the clinical evidence by medical marijuana, you know it's something that that uh, I'm paying close attention to, and mm -hmm. I know it's something we'll return to in the show. Uh, but for now, uh, I think we've had a, a wonderful, wide-ranging discussion. And I want to thank you, Jason. And again, it's a, it was an honor to be here. Thank you for for allowing me to come and, and speak. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Very good. Sure to join the conversation at Your Life Lived Well on all of your favorite social media sites, Patreon, and of course, yourlifelivedwell.co. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.